in Yangon, Myanmar. Um, we have been there since uh, 2012. And so we have seen a lot of changes the past couple years. As many of you know, the reason that we are here is COVID came through and then they had a military coup in February. So the military took over the government and detained all the elected officials. Um, they claimed that they would be having uh, new voting, but that has not happened yet, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. In the meantime, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, who many of the people call mother of the land, is still under house arrest, and it looks like she will be there for at least four years, I believe. So. Um, it seems like there are places where things are getting back to normal. So for example, in Yangon, the grocery stores are open again. Unfortunately, there is also um, a people's resistance that are fighting back against the military. So you never know when a bomb is going to go off or they will be attacking um, the police stations and things like that in Yangon. There are also more turmoil up in the villages um, in the north, so some of the states have their own army and so th that army is resisting the government army and so there are entire villages that are being burned and so it seems like every week there's something that we see in the news that is heartbreaking on the good note though this is a time where we have really seen God move so most of the foreigners have left the country but the local staff the local Christians are still quite active in fact we're getting updates from our YWAM group that they are running their fourth discipleship training group so they go for about six weeks training mainly youth about 16 to 25 years old they are also doing baptisms one of the other good things that we are seeing is a solidarity and a unity within different churches and so pastors are helping other pastors and that's really been encouraging and the other thing that we are seeing is people are more open to the gospel so our people have been doing food distributions during this hard time medicine distributions and during that time, they're able to connect with neighbors that before they might not have been able to connect with. So even though it's a very difficult time, it's a heartbreaking time, people are quite discouraged. We also see God moving, and we're rejoicing in that. And we're so thankful that the people that we work with are stepping up to the plate. And sometimes it takes a lot of bravery and confidence to go out, but they're doing that and we're seeing some fruit from that. So we're very excited about that. Another thing we're seeing is the use of the internet. So our deaf church members who have not been able to meet, they are using the internet to hold church and Bible study. And so that's been encouraging to see that the deaf are able to connect with each other. That's when the internet is on. The government sometimes shuts off the internet. Um, but we're encouraged by that. And we're also very thankful that our cross home children are all safe. And so um, we just want to praise God for that as well. So the next question is, what about us? We've been here for almost two years now. And we are, I think, going through the process of accepting that things will never be the same in Myanmar again. And we are moving through that to what is the next phase for us. So we still intend to get back to Myanmar. That will not change. We are still considering ourselves as Myanmar staff. In the meantime, though, we want to be working in Southeast Asia. Previously, we were thinking about being in Bangkok, but we have had some doors open for us to go to Batambang, Cambodia. 
So the reason that we're choosing Batambong, Cambodia is there is a YWAM group there. It's almost like a little university where it's quite a big campus. So they have dorm rooms, they have cafeteria, they are running up to six schools at the same time. They have a preschool and an elementary school on the campus. They have a um, exercise outreach, so they have a gym and they have a big soccer field. Um, and they do a lot of work in the villages. They also have an English center and a bakery in town. So lots of opportunity for Manasa to get connected and to get working and moving again. And also, we think it's a really nice time for the kids to connect with other kids. And so Bati has been accepted at the school, and so we're considering having her go to the school there. Um, right now, we are considered mission builders. So it's a short term, possibly three to six months. Um, and then after that, we will go into Myanmar right now. Um, we are seeing a bit of an open door in that two of our other workmates have gotten visas to go back to Myanmar. So that is a praise that they are um, continuing the process of giving visas. Probably what we would do is send Manasa first. That way he can kind of scout out how are things, is there actually things that we can actively be doing, or would we be just sitting in our house in Myanmar? So we want to wait till that time that we know God is opening the do doors for us to not only be safe, but to have activities and ministry again. So we're hoping that within three months or so, he'll be able to go and do that trip into Myanmar. So our plan is to leave around February 10th. We don't have our tickets yet because we are waiting for our visas to Cambodia to come back. We have to send those to Washington and they'll be processed and come back to us. So in the meantime, we're sorting through our things, doing our let's do this one last time before we go, um, and our last push for fundraising as well. So um, one of the things that we're noticing is we would really like to have more monthly supporters. So we're trying to make that as easy as we can by offering the option of getting, giving by credit card that does an automatic deduction. You can $10, $20, whatever. And we also um, are have an account here in Panora, so if you'd like to give checks or money to Pat and Marsha Kennedy, they can get it where it needs to be. And also you can funnel it through the church as well. Um, if you have any questions afterwards, we will be available. We'll be in the foyer, and you can ask Manasa or Bati or myself some of the questions, and we'd be glad to answer. We still have our email updates that we will be doing from there, and so if you're not on the email list, please sign up for that. I would say our prayer requests right now are continued health. I know it's a time where COVID is coming through again, so we just pray that we could remain healthy. And another prayer request is our house in Yangon. We still have our apartment, but the rent is due in February, and we've decided not to renew that apartment. That was a difficult decision for us. Um, we realize that we will basically be starting from scratch when we go back. So it's starting new, so we're going to sell most of our bigger furniture and then box up our other stuff and keep them at the YWAM base until we return. So we're trusting our friends to do that. So if you could pray that that would be a smooth transition. And then the other prayer request would be the finalization of those flights and finances and all the details that go into that. So again, we want to thank you for your support. And um, I know the kids are definitely going to miss going to church and Sunday school. Um, but I also hope that they're excited about their new adventure. Thank you. To look at how God works, his essential sovereignty, uh, how he continues to work through his promises. But then also, as we begin to travel into the deeper parts of Ezra, 
how in recognizing God's redemptive aspects and his desire for his people can draw us or should draw us to a deeper sense of worship and reverence of our king. For those of you that have been with us uh, over the past couple of weeks, I'm going to just ask if you'll bear with me. I want to just lay a little bit of context in what's happening in the book of Ezra. If we dive right into chapter 3, it's fine, but without understanding sort of the outlying story, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. First and foremost, what we need to remember and see is the book of Ezra essentially follows immediately after the book of 2 Chronicles. If you literally finish the book of 2 Chronicles and turn the page, you pretty much don't miss a beat. Now, why is that important? Well, Ezra is essentially the story of God bringing his people back to himself. And you say, well, why is God bringing people back to himself? What has occurred? It's important to see and know that prior to Ezra, in fact, several hundred years earlier, God comes forward and builds the temple of where the people of God worship him through Solomon. Now, all is good. People of God are doing their thing. But we all know that what happens is that over a period of time, the people of God begin to wane in their dedication and devotion to him. In fact, they begin to incorporate things of the world into their worship to the point that they forget about God. Interestingly enough, the prophet Isaiah comes forward and says, hey, people of God, you need to know that God has a message for you, and that is simply this that because you are lacking in worship and you have devoted yourselves to other things, God is going to come forward and he's going to raise up an army that will destroy not only the temple of where you worship, but push you into exile. And the people of God hear that message and they immediately repent and change their ways. And the Bible ends. No. Isaiah comes forward and continues to say, I'm warning you, this is God's heart, you need to turn. And the people of God look at Isaiah and they say, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even know what you're saying. Because Isaiah is telling the people of God that he's going to raise up the Babylonian army and that army will come and destroy the people of God and take them into exile for a period of 70 years. And then interestingly enough, he's saying, but after 70 years, I'm going to raise up another king by the name of King Cyrus. And he's not going to be with the Babylonian army. He's going to be with the Medo-Persians. And the Medo-Persians will conquer the Babylonians. And in conquering the Babylonians, after being in exile for 70 years, Cyrus is going to make an official decree telling you that you can return to your homes and rebuild the altar. Now, why is this important? Why is this context here? You have to understand and recognize, as I've said before, that Isaiah is saying these things 150 years before King Cyrus is even born. The Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, don't even exist and so the people of God listen to Isaiah and say, you're crazy. But here's what's interesting. 
If you turn to Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, and begin reading, everything that Isaiah has said has come true. The Babylonians have entered into the land. They have taken over the people of God. They have exiled them out. The temple has been destroyed. And essentially, 70 years has passed. And along come the Medo-Persians and King Cyrus, who conquer the Babylonians, and Cyrus issues a decree saying, the people of God, you may return to your land. We read through that essentially in chapter 1. That's where we learn of this decree. Last week, we went through the oh-so-joyous chapter 2, right? Celery, you should now, I pray, be excited when you see a list and realize that God is in the details, that God has a purpose and a plan, that God is a God of order, that God is a God of promise, that God is a God of deliverance. There's a reason for that list. And oftentimes, I know when I do my Bible studies, it's very often that we read chapter 1, and then we look at chapter 2, and we say, okay, there's about 70 verses of hard names to pronounce, so I'm just going to turn to chapter 3. And my encouragement to you is to go back and to read chapter 2, as we talked about last week, remembering and recognizing that each of the names in there are a family. I said last week, if we were in essentially a graduation, if we were looking at a commencement, and there were 500 people in the commencement list, what do you do? You immediately read down and find the person who is either your son, your daughter, your grandson, or the person who you come to celebrate, right? It's important. And you look and you see that. And you need to remember and recognize that each individual on that list is you. It's us. And that's why that's so important. And not only do we see that God returns the people of God back to the land, but I also mentioned that God is a God of order. In the sense that he doesn't just return the people back to the land. And what I meant by this is, okay, let's say that we all were exiled and we had to go to Kentucky for 70 years. And then after 70 years, we were able to come back to Guthrie County. But in the disorderness of who God is, those of us that live in Panora, we actually had to reestablish in Casey. And those that live in Casey had to reestablish in Panora. And those who live in Stewart had to reestablish in Bagley. So God's sort of a God of order, but we weren't able to really get back to where we were. We read in the word that the people return to their homes and begin to rebuild. And here's something that I want to ask you. You've been in exile. It's 70 years. You're now home. You get to rebuild what's been lost. What's your first priority? Look deep into your heart. What is your first priority? It's all about me. It's about my house. My house has been destroyed. I need to take care of myself, my needs, my desires. I need to establish my home, my wants, my aspects. And then once I'm on my feet, I'll begin to worry about other people. And once other people are on their feet, then maybe we'll think about God. Friends, I ask that you turn with me to Ezra chapter 3. 
and let's read truly what their priority is. Rebuilding the altar. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Yeshua, son of Jorzadak, and his fellow priests, Zerubbabel and Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burst offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear, the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for it each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began uh, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord through the foundation of the Lord's uh, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Friends, it's interesting because what we see here essentially is that the people of God have been in exile for 70 years and they have, by the providence of God, been able to return to their homes. We've also talked about the fact that on a worldly level, what the people see is that two armies have come forward. The Babylonians, the most powerful army of that time, to conquer the people of God for 70 years. And now the new man on the block, the even more powerful Medo-Persian army under the leadership of King Cyrus. And so, interestingly enough, as people are looking on a temporal level, it would appear that the world is in chaos. That a land has been conquered not once, now twice, by an army. And you, as you have been moved and dispersed, are now returning to your home. And I want to ask a question of all of us. If that were to occur here, if an army were to come and to displace us from our home, and then after 70 years, if another army were to come and take over that army and we were, return, were to return to Panora, can I ask you a question? How many of you would see God's hand in that? How many of you would recognize that God is leading and God is directing? Now, I want to be careful because this is a decree that was given by Isaiah. It's a specific prophecy. So I'm just giving an example to try to draw you in to understand what's going on during the people of God's time. But through it all, above it all, over it all, God is saying, this is exactly what I've said I will do. None of this should surprise you. I am in control. I am God. I have created the Babylonian army. I made Nebuchadnezzar king. I then rose up the Medo-Persians, and I made Cyrus king. And he was the one whom I'm using, as I've said through Isaiah, to be my shepherd to bring the people of God back to myself. And so, friends, the first thing that I want you to see and recognize is as the world ebbs and flows, as the world twists and turns, as things happen that are unexpected, as what we know and is common to us may or may not stay common to us, as what we have may be taken from us, it never ever means that God isn't there. 
Because God has said, I will be with my people and I will deliver them into my kingdom. And so friends, the first thing that I want you to see and realize is that as your life ebbs and flows, as good things happen, as bad things happen, to remember and recognize that as a person of God, despite what may transpire, God has and has given his promises and they will come true. You can rest in that fact. But then we get to the fact of we've now returned home. And the question that I asked earlier is what is your initial heart reaction? Take care of myself, take care of my things, establish myself before I worry about other people, and then definitely not worry about God. What I find interesting is as we look at the book of Ezra, the succession of how the people of God return to the worship of God and their priorities and how they've been set. And I think it has a lot of information for us on where our hearts need to be when we go through hardship. Now, it may not be exile, it may not be an army coming forward, but I certainly would say that over time in church, the church, the church body can experience joy as well as hardship. And we can individually either engage or not engage. We can either sit back as consumers or we can become contributors. And that's what this story is all about. The first thing that I want to show you is as we ask this question in this, which is essentially how should we respond when the church experiences adversity or hardship? That may come in many forms. It may be an exile. It may be financial difficulty. It may be struggle. It may be what we've seen through COVID. It could be a variety of different things. But the question that we ask ourselves is how should we respond when the church experiences adversity or hardship? And the first thing that I find so interesting in this is how they focus on the fundamentals. Notice what's first. The rebuilding of the temple, right? The outward appearance. The walls, the pretty things. The programs. No, they focus on the rebuilding of the altar. And I think as we look at this, they move to the fundamental aspects of their worship of God first. Let's get back to worshiping God and honoring Him, and then we'll worry about the peripheral. And interestingly enough, it starts off and it says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the seventh month here is probably September, to give you an idea, according to the calendar of how they've operated Estimates will say that they probably had a couple of months to get in, to get settled, but relatively quickly, the people of God moved to their main priority, and that was reestablishing worship. They got it, at least right now. The people of God looked and they said, you know what? God was right. We got away from God. We began to focus on our own things. We began to have idols in our worship. We began to doubt God. We began to sort of bring in worldly aspects and sort of mesh it together with God. And we kind of had this God as glob idea. And then when God actually said, hey, I'm not happy about this and something's going to happen, we kind of laughed at God. 
And you know what? God punished us, and it wasn't pretty. But now God, through his promise of restoration, has brought us home. I don't know about you, but if that occurred to me, prayerfully, I hope that God would be my first priority. That his worship and his glory and his honor, after having learned the lesson of being sent into exile, that my heart for God, the church's heart for God, would be the number one thing on the list. And so interestingly enough, when we look at this, we read immediately, it says, after they had settled in their towns, the people assembled as different individuals with different thoughts, desires, and wants for what they think worship should be all about. And when they didn't get what they wanted, they were all upset over the fact that the wrong songs song, uh, were sung, or that the color of the carpet wasn't what they wanted, or that the pastor went too long in his sermon, or that they didn't have this programming, or that they weren't able to pray, or that they weren't able to do this, or that the music was too contemporary, or the music was too many hymns. They all had their own individual thoughts about how they would worship God. And so they all came together, and then they all divided, because it was all about them, their wants, their desires, and everything they wanted. And P.S., by the way, they were upset because they didn't have gluten-free coffee. (laughs) Friends, I say this lovingly, but quite seriously. Is church about you and what you can consume from it? What you get what you don't get, what you expect? Or will you and do you assemble as one man, meaning one unit, to bring glory to God? When you come to church, where is your heart? Is it to exalt our Lord? Is it to bring Him praise? Or is it to critique, criticize certain aspects that you want or you desire or to bring personal thoughts or personal desires into worship in a heart of exalting self rather than exalting our Lord? Friends, one of the things that we see as the people of God return, and it's so evident, and I don't want you to miss miss this, is that they assembled as one man in Jerusalem with a single purpose. A body that's diverse in its thinking, yet unified in its glorification and exaltation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Friends, we need to remove individual preferences and become unified in worshiping God. And I think as we look at this, I think we can all check our hearts. Now, I'm not saying that we don't celebrate diversity within the body, the different gifts and talents that God brings, the different ideas and aspects that are there. But the question that I think we need to ask all of ourselves is, what's our common goal Is it to exalt God, or is it to get what we want, when we want, and how we want it out of worship? And when we don't, are we upset? And better yet, lovingly, are we more of a consumer, or are we more of a contributor in church? Do we come just to consume, just to sit in the seat, to feel good about ourselves, to tick it off of our list, and then to go home? 
Or are we here to contribute on however God may lay that on our heart? Now, please know in this, we all have different gifts and talents, and I'm not saying that each and every one of you needs to come up onto the pulpit on Sundays and preach. But are you using your gifts to bring glory and honor to God? Are you using your gifts to contribute to the exaltation of our Savior Jesus Christ? Or are you just essentially consuming? Heart check, friends. Do you come to church with selfish expectations or prideful motivations? Or are you willing to put down your own opinions and come together in unity, sharing the common purpose of exalting the Lord? The church came together as one man to Jerusalem. And then we see what their purpose is. And their purpose was to rebuild the altar, to bring back worship of God. A singular focus to bring glory and honor to his name. Because the people of God had seen what had occurred to them, and they recognized that God was restoring them back to himself. And here they get it right. They lay down their own desires, their own thoughts, and they say, how can we bring about true worship, authentic worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And it's not about myself, but it's about the glory of God. And so friends, lovingly, I ask you to look deep into your hearts. Are you here to exalt God or are you here to exalt self and self-desire? They turn and they assemble as one man in Jerusalem. And then we look at verse 2. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, Zerubbabel, and uh, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And so friends, not only should we remove individual preferences and become unified in worshiping God, but we see in verse 2, I think this fundamental purpose that we should focus on our fundamental purpose, which is to bring glory to God. Are we focusing on bringing glory to God, or are we here with our own desires, thoughts, and preferences? And when they don't occur, do we criticize, critique, or become upset or angered? Or do we continue to say, my, my job, my heart, is to bring glory and exaltation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Friends, lovingly, this probably isn't a popular message, but the church in the United States is one of the most spoiled churches I've ever seen in my entire life. I say that with love, but I also say that with a deep heart of regret. We have our air conditioning. We have our buildings. We have our fans. We have our programs. We have our lights. We have our comfy chairs. We have our heat. We have our banners. We have our microphones. We have all of these things... And yet there are places in this world where people of God are worshiping with none of that. With the fear of being persecuted. With the fear of being thrown into prison for doing what they do. And I'm not trying to make us feel guilty. I'm just trying to recognize us to see how truly blessed we are. We have been given so much. And lovingly I ask, where is our heart? 
Is our fundamental purpose bringing glory to God? Do we exist to exalt Him? We look and we see and notice this. They began to sacrifice. This is sort of toward the end. It's like 2B. They began to uh, sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They begin to look back and see and say, what is in God's word? What is in his commandments and what can we do? Friends, one of the other things that I think is so important is to remember and recognize that what we have in Scripture is real. What we have in Scripture is the command of God, the life that we've been given, the opportunity that we have to bring the glory of the gospel to a world that is lost and hurting. And friends, what I want to lovingly ask you is this. Are we reading it? Are we studying it? Are we submitting ourselves to it? Or are we coming to church, sitting in a seat, listening to a message, going home, and then forgetting about it until the next Sunday or maybe three Sundays later when it's convenient for us to come to worship? Friends, I know this probably isn't a popular thing to say, but there are times when I wonder what would occur if the church in America began to become truly persecuted. Where would our hearts be? Where would they go? It's interesting. I think providentially we had a message, obviously from Alyssa and Manasseh, about Myanmar. Please hear me, I don't want to have happen in the United States what's occurring in Myanmar, but indirectly we see that over the strife and the struggle that is there, the blessing is, is that the people of God, as they are going through that hardship, are becoming solidified and unified and they are becoming stronger in their faith and they're becoming bolder and they're sharing more about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so friends, I ask, is it about comfort Or is it about the gospel? Friends, we need to focus on our fundamental purpose, which is to bring glory to God. We look at verse 3, and it says, Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Both the morning and the evening sacrifices. One of the things that I think is interesting, and we'll see two things, but the main point that I see in verse three is is that we should realize that struggle and strife can drive us to a deeper heart of worship. It can drive us to more authenticity in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I think is so hard right now that I see in the church in America is this sort of concern about what's going on. Everybody's worried about what's happening in the United States. But then when you ask some deeper questions of people, is a lot of people say, oh, it's so terrible, it's so awful, but no one wants to give up their comfort. 
No one wants to make the sacrifice necessary for the advancement of the gospel. And friends, lovingly, I'm just asking this because I know it's not popular, but it's real. If God came to us and said, I'm going to advance the gospel, but I'm going to make it uncomfortable, I'm going to make it hard, I'm going to remove all of the opportunities that are here, all of these things that you have to bring glory to my name, I'm going to take away. Can I ask a question? Where would you be next Sunday? Would you come and would you worship God in the cold, in the rain, no microphone, no lights? And so friends, sometimes we need to think about these things and realize truly how blessed we are and what we've been given. And in that, may I drive our hearts to a deeper sense of reverence and awe of the King and his relationship with us. It's interesting because it says in verse 3 that the people, despite their fear, they built the altar and its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord. I think this is very real. Realize the people of God have been sent into exile. They've now been returned to their homes via another army that's even more powerful than the army that first conquered them. Their natural inclination could be, I'm just going to try to take care of myself. And so in fear, they move with faith. And they move to the one who can ultimately bring about protection and restoration. P.S., they move to the one who has already brought about protection and restoration, which is God. And so they move, and they begin to rebuild the altar. Let's focus on the main thing. Let's bring glory back to God. And so this struggle and strife is driving the people of God to a deeper heart of worship. And that's the whole aspect of the remaining part of this book. God's desire in restoring the people back to himself is to demonstrate his power and his authority and his, and his sovereignty, but also to have the people of God's hearts turn back to him. And they continue on, and it says, Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. A few things here. If you ever want to go back and look, I encourage you to go back to the Torah and look at all of the different sacrifices and all of the different ways that the people of God were to bring glory to him. But interestingly enough, we read about the Feast of Tabernacles, and essentially what that celebration is, is celebrating the exile 
the people of God in the Feast of Tabernacles would essentially leave their homes and they would go and live in tents for two weeks to demonstrate the faithfulness of God when he delivered them out of Egypt. Now, I don't know about you, but I've just been exiled. I've just returned home. There's fear everywhere. And I want to rebuild my house and put a wall around it and just live my life. I certainly don't want to go and rebuild the altar. And I tell you this, I'm not going to go live out in a tent where somebody could just take it and destroy it, right? Friends, what's interesting here is what they're doing is they're going back and they are recalling the ways in which God has been faithful and they're celebrating his promises. They're looking back and they're saying, in the Feast of Tabernacles, we're celebrating your deliverance of us out of Egypt. And we're here, and we've just been out of exile, and we're trying to rebuild, and things are uncertain, and we're in fear, and it's a new area, but you've returned us home. And so we're going to look back, and we're going to recall that you delivered us out of Egypt, and you've brought us home. Friends, what I want to ask you is this. When we go through hardship, challenge, or strife, what's your first inclination? Is it to look on how to get out of it or how God can remove you from it? Or do you look back and say, you know what, this is hard, it's gut-wrenching, I don't know what's going on, but I look back on how you've been faithful here and here and here, and even though I don't know what's going on now, I trust that you've been faithful here and here and here, and so you will be faithful here. They're looking back at the promises that God has made and walking in faith with the promises that God has given. And so I want to ask you this. In strife, in challenge, what's your natural inclination? Do we look back to the promises of God? Do we hear what he said? Now interestingly enough, I'm going to fast forward because we also know that what? Ezra happens and the people of God live happily ever after, right? Jesus doesn't come, the people finally get it, all is well. Now, as much as I love this, what we see is God restores his people back to themselves. They engage in authentic worship, they start getting it right, all is good, and God is with them for a little while. And then life continues on and the people of God say, you know, life is good, we're doing fine, we don't need you, God. And what happens? They slip back right to where they were before Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered them. And what happens then? Another army comes. The Roman army and destroys the temple in 70 AD for the third time. The third time. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a baseball guy, and in my opinion, three strikes and you are out. Done. Right? I mean, I, I get it. A kid, they make a mistake, you teach them, you tell them this is wrong, you give them another chance. They make another mistake, you tell them what's wrong, you teach them, you give them a third chance. They make a third mistake? You're done. 
You can't get it right. And so in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. The people of, are, of God are dispersed again in what is called the Great Diaspora. They're scattered all over the world. And what we said before is, is you would think that at that point in time, God would have forgotten his people or he would have said, you know what? They just don't get it right. I'm moving on. I'm going to work with dogs from now on. Right? Friends, think about the steadfast love of God. He never gives up because he's promised that he will deliver his people. He's promised to restore his people. And we go from 70 AD, not 70 years. We go 1,000, I think this is right, check my math, 1,875 years where Israel is not on the map when the people of God are dispersed all over the world to World War II where the people of God are persecuted directly by the Nazi party. Where are you, God? Your promises aren't true. We can't trust you. And then we know in 1948, through the decree of the United Nations, that Israel becomes a country again. And God restores his people back to himself a third time. P.S., by the way, as is prophesied all the way back in Isaiah 11.11, some 3,000 plus years prior to its occurrence. And so God is faithful in his restoration despite what? Our unfaithfulness to him. And so friends, not only should we recall the ways in which God has been faithful and celebrate his promises, but then in verse 6, on the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to to the Lord, through the foundation of the Lord's temple, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not been laid. And this is the thing that I think that we also should recognize, is that we should submit ourselves to the word of God while choosing to trust and obey its commands. As we look at what's going on here, as we look at the reestablishment of worship, as the people begin to essentially settle in they move to the altar first, and then they move to the right amount of sacrifice according to the word of God. Go back up and read, essentially, in verse 2. They began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what they wanted to do. What they thought was best what they felt would do them the most good. No, in accordance with what? What is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. What is written in the Torah, the Bible of their day. We're going to look to what God's word says, and we're going to do it. All of it to bring glory and honor to his name. And so friends, I think what this shows us is, is that we should submit ourselves to the word of God while choosing to trust and obey its commands. And another unpopular thing, but a heart check for us today is this. Are there certain commands in the Bible that we choose to ignore and overlook? Mm, 
That one's not culturally relevant. Oh, that one's not popular today. Ooh, that one isn't going to be good. Oh, my friends aren't really going to like me if I choose to look at this. Or do we obey God's word only when it's convenient or serves our own desires? Just pass that one over. Don't talk about that part. Certainly, that's not the Bible. Certainly, Paul didn't know what he was saying when he wrote those words. Don't talk about sin. It's not popular. Tell everybody that they're okay and God loves them. Come as you are, stay as you are. Don't tell them that they're dead in their sin and need a Savior. Certainly don't let them know that if they don't know their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, their eternal destiny is one separate from Him called a place known as hell. That's not popular. Don't tell them that the only way to salvation is by proclaiming the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and recognizing that we are in need of a Savior and that's the reason that Jesus went to the cross. Tell them that there's a nice God out there who loves them all and we all can sing Kumbaya together and that all dogs go to heaven and that all we've got to do is just be good and do good things and smile and say the right words and all will be fine. Don't tell them about the hard parts of Scripture. Certainly, don't preach a message that's not popular. Certainly, don't let people be convicted in their sin because often when they are, what they do is they go to the pastor and tell him that he preached the message wrong. Friends, do we submit ourselves to the word of God while choosing to trust and obey its commands? Do we allow it to permeate our hearts? Do we allow it to cut deep into our souls and reveal the dark sides of us that need to be brought to the light? Or do we hide behind them masquerading as believers still yet in darkness? On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord See, the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Friends, peripheral is wonderful. Please hear me. I feel very blessed to pastor. I feel very blessed to be part of this church. I feel very fortunate to have what we have, to be given what we've been given. But lovingly, I think we all must do a heart check. Should that all be taken away? And all we have is a broken altar, metaphorically speaking. Will we still be able to bring awe and reference to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Or will we think that the world has fallen apart around us? How should we respond when the church experiences adversity and hardship? One thing I think that we see first and foremost is we need to remove individual preferences and become unified in worshiping God. Please hear me. I'm not saying that we all should become yes men and yes women and all talk, look, and act like me. That would be very easy for me, but it'd be very, very boring. Celebrate your diversity. Celebrate how God has gifted you. But also lovingly, I ask you to check your heart are you here as a consumer or are you coming as a contributor? 
And in coming as a contributor, is your heart to exalt your own desires or is your heart to exalt our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Friends, we should also focus on our fundamental purpose, which is to bring glory to God. It's not Trevor's church. It's not Faith Bible Church. It's a church that I pastor that's named Faith Bible Church. But it's God's church. It's Jesus Christ's church. He is the head and he is the one that is due honor and glory to his name each and every day. Not just by myself, but by every single one of us here who calls themselves a follower or a disciple of Jesus. Friends, we should realize, though, that struggle and strife can drive us to a deeper heart of worship. I know this sounds crazy, but if, Father, we're going to have a deeper heart of worship and this church is going to grow in its heart for you and we're going to be able to bring about enlightenment, we're going to bring people to Jesus Christ, then maybe we do need to experience hardship because we all talk about, we all say, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to have another great awakening. Oh, wouldn't it be great to see so many people of Jesus come and experience his name? But certainly don't make me uncomfortable. Don't take away all of my possessions. Don't take away all of my worldly comforts. But God, move. Friends, lovingly, I hate to tell you, but where I see God move in scripture and around the world is when the church experiences hardship. And perhaps... Perhaps maybe why the church isn't moving as it should in the United States is because we're not willing to experience hardship. Friends, we should recall the ways in which God has been faithful and celebrate his promises. If he can do it there, he can do it here. If he can deliver them out of exile, the people of God from Egypt, he can deliver them out of exile back to the land of Jerusalem after being exiled in Ezra. If he can deliver the people of God back to Jerusalem after the Roman army destroys the temple in 70 AD, he can establish his kingdom and he will remain faithful to us. Friends, we should submit ourselves to the word of God while choosing to trust and obey its commands. Friends, I'm not saying absolute legalism, but I am saying that I think that the watered-down gospel is one of the great travesties to the church. And I think right now in the United States, the church is anemic in its worship. Just come as you are. Celebrate the God of love. Don't talk about his judgment. Don't talk about his purpose. Don't talk about his sovereignty. Just talk about five ways in which Jesus makes you a better person. Friends, lovingly, Jesus didn't die on the cross to make you a better person. Jesus died on the cross to bring you from death to life. And as much as I want to tell you that Jesus does to make you five ways to be better this, that, or the other thing, my question is this. How can you be better at anything when you're dead? and you've not been brought to life. And so finally, what I want to share is this, that adversity and hardship 
however it might come, however it may be necessary, should draw our hearts toward a deeper sense of unity and the worship of our Savior when we realize his redemptive heart toward us. Don't miss that the whole point of what's going on in this is God not to just shame his people. God doesn't just sit there and say, shame on you, I want to show you how bad you are. No, he says, when there is sin, there are consequences. But even in those consequences, my heart for you has been, is, and always will be to restore you back to myself. God redeems his people back to themselves in Ezra. God's people start to get it right. They mess up again. They have AD 70. God's people mess up again. God brings Jesus, dies on a cross so that we might have life through his sacrifice, through the grace and mercy that's given through Jesus, to be fully restored to God, to be part of his family as heirs to the promises of the kingdom with full rights and privileges in the kingdom of God, which is eternal and will never end. And all you need to do is to put your faith in the one who died on the cross for you and submit yourself to his word. Friends, what I want to leave us with is this that while sin and selfishness can and does have consequences, remember that the whole point of Ezra is that no matter what sin or sins, other than the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, no matter what sins we have committed, God is willing and goes to great lengths to restore us. He brings about the temple. The temple is destroyed. He brings about another temple. That temple is destroyed. He brings about another temple. And that one's destroyed. But he brings about the greatest of all, and that one is destroyed. So that the temple can live in us. I don't know about you, but that's a restorative God who desires a relationship with his people. This fact should drive our hearts toward deeper and authentic worship of our Savior. Friends, I want to ask a simple question. Has what we have experienced over the last two years with the global pandemic driven your heart further from God, further from the church, further from its purposes, further from driving toward a sense of unity? Or has it driven it to a deeper sense of awe, reverence, and worship in joy of the opportunity to come and worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? On a Sunday, in a church, with air conditioning, and lights, and heat, and comfy chairs. Where's your heart? Has adversity drawn you closer to God or further away?